This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Sean Rubin, author of Bolivar, which is a pretty excellent graphic novel, Mm -hmm. sort of somewhere in between kids' book and adult book. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Fruitadens, and a bunch of dinosaur news. As always. Yes. Also, as always, (laughs) we're going to thank some of our Stegosaurus and higher patrons. And this week we're going to thank Chris, Nicholas, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Glenn Liddell, Dashiell Hammond, and Stego Sophie. Yay! Our list is getting full. It is filling up. Well, thanks everyone. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it really helps us to keep our podcast going, and we have more things planned. We've now got in the upper 70s of patrons, and that means we're almost halfway to our next reward, where we'll be mailing out a piece of dinosaur art to all of our patrons. So if you want to get in on that and help us reach that reward level, then you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash inodino. Yes, and as a hint, it's the art is inspired by Planet Earth 2. Yeah, you've said that before. It's so vague, though. Well, <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil the it. surprise. If you have a guess, you should tell us what it is. Yeah. And if somebody I think guesses it's f- it, we'll probably confirm it. Well, I think it's a fun concept. I really like it, too. <laughs> you can get a sense of our art style from our... We did some drawings for Jurassic World, the dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. This yeah. one's better, though. This one will be better, yeah. Because we we went through like 200 drawings on a whiteboard in a matter of hours, whereas this is one you've been spending hours on just one piece. <laughs> yes. But just to get a sense of the style. Yeah. Jumping into the dinosaur news... The first one I want to talk about is a little bit of a callback to a fun fact I did about how much sauropods could poop. (laughs) And it was published in Paleontology by Fiona Gill and others. And what they specifically were looking at was the nutrition content of plant matter that sauropods were likely to eat. And Based on their poop? No. So what they were doing was they were sort of trying to simulate a both- the environment in the late Jurassic, as well as the guts of a sauropod. (gasps) Gut contents? Well, sort of, but they're creating the gut contents. Okay, that's 
almost as good. <laughs> yeah. I like it because it's a real experiment. Like one of my favorites was the one where they simulated a circulatory system of a sauropod and mm -hmm. they like raised it up on a stage and filled it with red colored blood. And then at some point it accidentally burst and like got blood, fake blood everywhere. So it's kind of like T-Rex autopsy. Yeah, that one was sort of, but it was an actual experiment, whereas T-Rex autopsy was just for the... Ed edutainment. Yeah, edutainment value. It's a good choice. But in this article, what they did was they looked at these late Jurassic Morrison formation animals and plants. So they're basically simulating Brachiosaurus and Diplodocus, maybe another sauropod thrown in the mix like Camarasaurus or something. Mm -hmm. And then they assumed that they had a diet of ferns, horsetails, a dawn redwood is the name, or the common name at least, ginkgo, and a monkey puzzle tree what? from Chile. <laughs> yeah, so they, they only gave the scientific name, so I looked up the six different species, and that was my favorite one, monkey puzzle tree. It's a good one. It sort of looks like a, a really tall sort of palm tree-like trunk, and then at the top, it has sort of a half of a sphere so it's like the top of a cap or something at the top, like a giant rivet or... So it's a I don't know. puzzle on how monkeys get up there or something? I don't know why they call it a monkey puzzle tree. I didn't look <laughs> into it that much. I just wanted to know which which plants they were looking at. Because a couple of the articles that reference this only mentioned the ferns and horsetails. And I was thinking, wait, they didn't do any trees? Because it seems like you'd want to include some trees in there. Mm -hmm. But they Especially did. for Brachiosaurus. Yeah, exactly. For Diplodocus, maybe not, you know, maybe the horsetails and the ferns are about right. But for these ones that potentially had a much higher upright posture, you want to do some trees. So then what they did is they took these plants and they put them into a contained environment and cranked up the carbon dioxide level. And they did that because the carbon dioxide level in the late Jurassic was about four to five times higher than it is now. And if you're knowledgeable about carbon dioxide, it was about 2000 ppm back then which is quite high, and it's why sea level was so much higher than it is now. But when they did that, the whole point of it was to see how it would work inside <laughs> the digestion of a dinosaur, because you can measure, say, the growth rate of these plants and then sort of guess that, oh, if it grew faster, there would be more plants around. But previously, scientists have proposed, even if they grew faster, they might not have had as much nutrition in them. Hmm. Maybe they had less carbon in them or less nitrogen or who knows what, but it might have been less nutritious for the animals eating them. So what they did is they artificially fermented plants into sort of a gaseous state as happens when you ferment plants and then they monitored the gas <laughs> to see sort of what the contents were. And I think they did some liquid samples too probably, but their quote about how they did it was kind of fun. They said that quote, Milled plant samples were incubated with cattle rumen fluid in gas-tight syringes at 37 degrees Celsius, end quote. And that's about human body temperature, and it's a pretty good estimate for sauropods. We talked about that recently, too. And if you're wondering what cattle rumen is... I was just about to ask. <laughs> rumen is the name of the first stomach of a ruminant. So in this case, a cow, because they kind of have multiple stomachs. So they took the juice out of that and used it basically simulating a giant cow, which I think is what we discussed when we were talking about what kind of poop they had, was you scale up a cow. It's the kind of thing that ferments 
plants for a long period of time. So it's a pretty good analog. <laughs> right. I think elephants might be slightly better, but then they live in a sort of different environment and it's not as easy to get elephant gut contents <laughs> as it is to get cattle gut contents. And then they left it in the syringes for 72 hours and they said they did that because sauropods probably had large guts for exactly this reason so that they could digest it for long periods of time, mm -hmm. get more nutrients out of it. The interesting thing about the study is they found that these plants, after they were soaked in the rumen for a while, they had more nutritional value than was previously estimated. So this means that they could have eaten a lot less food than we previously estimated. And a previous hypothesis that they mentioned in the study, which I hadn't heard before, was that sauropods had to get so big because the high carbon dioxide content made the food less nutritious. And so they had to be that big just to be able to consume enough plant material so that they could survive. It's kind of a weird thing, mm -hmm. but that was a hypothesis for a while. It's not the case, though, because what they found was that different plants had different responses to the high carbon dioxide levels, and it's kind of all over the place. So, like, when you go from 400 to 800 ppm of carbon dioxide, the some plants get more efficient and have more nutritional value. Other plants get less nutritious. Sometimes it flips again when you go up to 1,200 ppm or up to 2,000 ppm, so it's kind of really inconsistent <laughs> but overall it stays pretty flat across the different plants so you're not really seeing this kind of effect because of that i think my estimates in that fun fact about using modern plants is pretty reasonable if you do say so yourself yeah <laughs> although they were very rough estimates so they're i mean even if the it wasn't off by 20 percent, i only have one significant figure so it's not very useful anyway and then the author said that because the plants have more nutrition than previously thought, that increases the estimated carrying capacity of the late Jurassic. And they said that it increases from about 55 million kilojoules per kilometer squared per day to 69 million kilojoules per kilometer squared per day. I know those are kind of obscure units, but basically it means that you could have about 20% more dinosaurs in the <laughs> land area. <laughs> That's a lot more dinosaurs. Yeah. Although, who knows? With sauropods, maybe there were only like five, and now there's six. Well, they eat a lot. Yes. And up next, I've got another article sort of following up on previous things. I guess at this point, we've done over 190 episodes, so a lot of things have been mentioned before. But <laughs> this one is about melanosomes, or melanosomes, and it was written by Maria McNamara and others, published in Nature Communications, so anyone can read it. And what they were looking into was, if we can tell the color of dinosaurs by melanosomes, are we sure that those melanosomes come from the right part of the dinosaur? As a little bit of background, melanosomes produce pigment all over the place. They produce pigment in fish scales, amphibian skin, human hair, and reptilian scales, so probably dinosaurs. And they have different shapes which allow you to tell what sort of color they were creating. For example, eumelanosomes make a black color and are typically rod-shaped, and pheomelanosomes make a reddish color and are circular. So those are two that we commonly see in the fossil record. They found them in Anchiornis fossils a long time ago, well, not that long ago, maybe a decade or two, and based on that, recreated the coloration pattern on an Anchiornis, which is a sort of early bird-ish dinosaur, and they basically just recreated it as black with some red spots mostly on the head, the red. Sounds pretty. 
Yeah, thanks. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> I have red hair on my head. Oh, we don't have red and black hair. Oh, I suppose. Thanks, retracted. <laughs> and in the past, researchers have asked, could we be looking at bacteria? But we think that's probably not the case based on a myriad of different things, mostly based on the chemical signature of the melanosomes themselves. But what I hadn't seen anybody talk about before is what this team was looking at, and it's whether or not the melanosomes would, could be from another part of that same animal's body. And I had no idea that melanosomes were produced anywhere other than in the skin because they're basically used in the skin to you know, make colors. So if you're trying to show off for display or have colors to blend in with the environment or protect you from the sun or anything like that, it's obviously very useful. Why you would need a pigment inside your body, I don't know. Hmm. But apparently there are reasons for this. And the researchers call all of these inside the body parts non-integumentary organs. And the integument is the fancy word for your skin. All the layers of your skin because there's the epidermis and the dermis and all this kind of stuff. So you combine it all and they call it the integument. They tested frogs to do this. I'm not sure why they picked frogs. I think it's because they had living frogs and some fossilized frogs. They could with, compare them. Yeah, with pretty good examples of melanosomes. That's my guess. Within their bodies? Yes. Yeah, I think so. So what they did was in the living frogs or the recently killed frogs so that they could immediately test and look around for melanosomes, they found melanosomes in the liver, lung, and spleen, and by far the most were in the liver. They used the staining agent to see where the melanosomes were, and the liver was like chock full of them. It's just like packed with these melanosomes. Then after 12 weeks of decay, because they're interested in seeing how they spread, if, you know, say you dig up a dinosaur 80 million years later, would they have moved out of the liver into the skin, for example? They found... Now the melanosomes are all over the torso and also in some cases getting into the thigh muscle where there weren't any previously. So they're kind of oozing around inside the body. Weird. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes sense because as an animal decomposes, it gets kind of mushy on the inside. Oh, I guess. And it can get mixed up. There's that whole entropy pushing the different chemicals around. And importantly, they found that both skin and non-skin melanosomes survived the decay process. So it's not like you can just say, oh, well, all the ones inside the body disappeared, and therefore we don't have to worry about it in dinosaur fossils or vice versa. Then what they did is they switched over to fossilized frogs, and they looked at the outer side of the skin, and they found melanosomes. And then they looked at the inner side of the skin, and they found different type of melanosomes. And what they realized was, well, the inner side of the skin has melanosomes that were found within the body originally. It's the same as the ones that were in the torso, basically. Whereas the ones on the outer side of the skin were probably the melanosomes that were originally in the skin. So if you're really careful about it, you can look at the right part of the skin and make sure that you're looking at the coloration melanosomes rather than melanosomes that are in the body doing something else. But they pointed out that previous studies haven't really been this careful and they hadn't sampled from what they call the non-integumentary melanosomes or just the torso area of the dinosaurs because they just didn't want to get confused by the issue. But they're proposing that everyone should look at it because that way you can make sure that you're not accidentally counting these inside melanosomes as coloration. So basically 
double check your work and maybe dinosaurs aren't the colors that we think they were. Yeah, it's potentially true. Although some of the headlines were like, everything you know about dinosaur coloration is wrong. It's like, no, we don't know. <laughs> it's probably right if they did their work carefully. It's just not totally clear. And the really good thing about the research was that they could tell a difference between the melanosomes that were from inside the body and outside the body. There are very different shapes, statistically different in all cases. But then when you're comparing something like the liver to the skin, they were just obviously different even with the naked eye. So considering the liver is where most of these melanosomes come from, if you check out the inside of the body, it's probably a lot of these liver melanosomes that are hopefully very different. So if you see that type of melanosome on the outside, then you can just exclude them from your analysis pretty easily. Couldn't you say, though, that like the ones that made the black color and are rod-shaped and the ones that made the red color and are circular-shaped, you know those shapes? And if you see those shapes, then it probably was that color? Yeah, but you have to be really careful because they have those shapes, I believe, on the inside, too. Although I think most of them are the round shape. Oh, okay. But you want to make sure that it's the right round shape. And I think there's a little bit of variability between species, what exactly they looked like. So, for example, on these frogs, there were lots of round ones. Some, they were slightly different on the spleen versus the liver versus the skin. So you want to make sure you're looking at the right ones from the right part of the body. A funny thing that they also said was that melanosomes could also spread across the body when organs, quote, decompose or the carcass ruptures from gas pressure, end Ooh. quote. <laughs> so like it explodes from gas buildup and then all the inside liver melanosomes cover the surface of it. Not just melanosomes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but they point out that that hasn't been tested or shown yet. And I suspect that if something is getting fossilized with its skin preserved and everything, it usually means that it gets buried pretty quickly. So... It's probably not sitting around for weeks in the open air and then bursting without anything relieving the pressure. I guess it's possible, though, depending on how it died. But the thing that they're most concerned with is if the animal dies and then gets shifted around a little bit. So say it dies in a flood or something, and then some water kind of mixes up the organs a little bit, then you might mix up some of these inside organ melanosomes too much with the skin and it might get hard to tell the difference. But in normal circumstances, the outside should be the skin coloration, melanin producing guys, and then the inside ones should stay on the inside. So hopefully that was the case and everything we know wasn't wrong. I'm sure not everything was wrong. <laughs> yeah. But I think that just shows science is always changing and then there's always things we learn to look for. Yeah, there's always refinements for mm -hmm. sure. Next, a team from the University of Kansas has found a juvenile T-Rex in the Hell Creek Formation, which is pretty cool. Chris Super first found it in 2016, and it was a combination of just having a good eye for spotting tiny pieces of fossils and also being a little lucky. Hmm. David Burnham and a team found a skull, teeth, claws, femur, pelvis, and other bones, and they think it was a juvenile female T-Rex that had, wow. yeah, so very rare. And it had a healed fractured rib and an injury on one of the feet. And it possibly died in a flood. I always get a little knee-jerk reaction when they start saying genders of dinosaurs, though. Because I don't, I don't really buy it. <laughs> Isn't there a whole thing on the medullary bone? Yeah, that's Especially probably what they're talking about. Because I think you said that they found a thigh bone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, femur. So 
that's the kind of place you would see medullary bone. But whether or not it's actually medullary bone is very up for debate still. Well, the exciting thing is it's a juvenile T-Rex. Yeah, it's really cool. And how much of the body they found is, is really nice. Yeah. So they got permission from the federal government to remove more of the hillside to get the rest of their T-Rex this summer. That's why it's in the news. And it's going to still take a few years to finish all the digging and clean the bones and prepare the specimen to go on display, but we'll probably learn a lot from it. Nice. Got a few news items about footprints. So Professor Xing Lida and a team from China University of Geosciences, they've started looking for some dinosaur footprints in the Hebei province in Chengde. The footprints were found back in 1992 by Harvard University professor Richard Foreman, who found them on a, quote, paving stone close to the Ruha Spring in the mountain resort, end quote. There were more than 30 footprints in the stones, but it's unclear what happened to them. And in 1993, also more than 80 footprints were found in Luanping County, Chengde, nearby. And the footprints are from 130 million years ago. And just as a side note, the Chengde Mountain Resort, where the dinosaur tracks were found in paving stones, was built back in 1703 and was a summer retreat for the Qing Dynasty emperors. Hmm. Fancy. Fancy dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> Preemptively fancy. Yeah. Yeah, they knew. They knew they'd be hanging out with Qing Dynasty emperors at some point. I'm sure it was on their mind. Or at least their footprints would be. <laughs> in the UK, on the Isle of Purbeck, dinosaur footprints have been found at the Lewis Quarries. And these are of sauropod footprints from the early Cretaceous. Professor Matthew Bennett, who's a geologist from Bournemouth University, examined them and documented them with photogrammetry. There's a plan to conserve them and remove some where possible to put on display. Lots of good things going on display or plans to put them on display. Yeah, it's hard to remove a sauropod footprint and put it on display. Although we saw a good one in South Korea. I always think those might be recreations, but it's kind of hard to tell. Either way, it was impressive. <laughs> also in the news was about this father and son team, Doug Wolf and his son, Christopher, who recently presented together about being dinosaur hunters in Springerville, Arizona. I should mention Christopher is now 28. And Doug and Christopher founded the Zuni Dinosaur Institute for Geosciences and the White Mountain Dinosaur Exploration Center in Springerville, which, according to their website, is, quote, dedicated to providing opportunities for citizen scientists to participate in scientific research that provides a deeper knowledge of Earth's past, assisting all humanity as we go forward in time, end quote. Noble goals. But also cool that a father and son started this. And I think... Uh, Actually, I think the whole family started it, mentioned on the website. So Doug and Christopher have also discovered three new dinosaur specimens along the Arizona-New Mexico border. And at their talk, they brought a life-size puppet of one of their new dinosaurs. It's not yet named, but it looks like a theropod, and the puppet has feathers. And it's mm. really colorful. It's got this white snout and blue eyes and green and black and speckled gray feathers. Wow, they did make it very colorful. Mm -hmm. I bet that's not based on melanosomes. I think that's based on their desire to have a colorful puppet. Yeah, could be. <laughs> Maybe they'll change it if more details come out after it's properly described. Yeah. We've got a quick update on the Bayville dinosaur in New Jersey. We've talked before about that dinosaur. It's getting repaired. And in the meantime, somebody put a temporary inflatable green sauropod in its place. <laughs> I don't know how long it'll last there, but because, you know, it's inflatable. It must be very light. Yeah. But it's cute. <laughs> Next, uh, Miles Garrett from the Cleveland Browns recently traded his signed number 95 jersey for a dinosaur toy. Hmm. 
Yeah, back in December, he tweeted that he would do this if somebody traded a dinosaur toy with him. <laughs> and so one fan, Eric Scalfano, took him up on it. And now there's a picture of the two of them together with the jersey. Although there's no picture of the dinosaur toy, so I don't know what he exchanged it for. That's funny. Yeah. Well, apparently Garrett's a big dinosaur fan. Miles Garrett. Not you, Garrett. Obviously, you are <laughs> a big dinosaur fan, too. But <laughs> Miles Garrett almost went to Ohio State instead of Texas A&M because of Ohio State's Earth Sciences School. Oh, that's pretty great. Yeah. It took a long time for someone to take him up on that offer. He offered it in December and it didn't happen till no, July. Eric gave him the toy or offered the trade a long time ago. I think it took a long time for their schedules to match up and they could uh, take this picture together. Oh, gotcha. Okay. That makes more sense because I was thinking that guy must be a really unpopular football player. No, no. Nobody wanted his signed jersey. <laughs> but that's not the case. It's good. No, it just turns out he's really busy. That makes more sense. <laughs> there was an interesting review recently of a new South Korean film that came out this summer called Along with the Gods, The Last 49 Days. And apparently it's a sequel to Along with the Gods, The Two Worlds. And that's about a, quote, recently deceased fireman overcoming elaborate tortures on his path toward a potential rebirth, end quote. I'm trying to imagine how this could go towards dinosaurs. Very abruptly. <laughs> The sequel is apparently about the three death gods who helped the firemen. Uh -huh. And in the movie, there's flashbacks to their past lives, and that apparently involves dinosaur attacks. Okay, weird. Yeah. I couldn't find too much detail on the dinosaurs, but it does sound intriguing. Yeah. And then it goes, it's very abrupt. It goes from something like dinosaur attacks to arguing in a courtroom or something. Oh, I see. It's just like a brief snippet. Of a dinosaur in the movie. Yeah, it's probably not much. But interesting that it exists. Our next few news items are about Jurassic Park. This first one gets a little bit dark, though, just as a warning. We want to thank Richard, who shared this one with us. There's a YouTube video that came out this month called The Most Disturbing Death Scene in Jurassic Park History, Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. It was pretty dark. I guess so. Maybe I'm just so used to the story. Yeah, that's true. It is a horror story about dinosaurs killing people. So basically what it's about. Yeah. So this video, it's about five minutes long, and it brings to life one of the scenes from the book. It's got this feel of, if you ever seen that show Snapped? <laughs> the Lifetime show. <laughs> the Lifetime show or Making of a Murderer, where it dives in pretty deep and they're asking questions and you've got kind of the mu the mood music, ominous music in the background. So it's like a mockumentary kind of? Ish, yeah. So in the video, he says that the most disturbing scene is the opening scene in Jurassic Park, the novel, where the compies kill a baby. So yes, that is dark. <laughs> Darker than killing a lawyer or something. Yeah. And there's images of compies from the various Jurassic Park films. They don't show this scene actually happening, just, you know, bits from the films that... Yeah. Kind of call back to it. And they talk about how they adapted that scene. Yeah, I think that's what they're referencing in The Lost World when the little girl is on the beach, Kathy Bowman to be specific, and she gets attacked by the Compsognathus. Yeah, that makes sense. And she gets attacked, but she ends up being okay. Yeah, fared better than in the novel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then the video ends with the question if the full scene from the book will make it into any of the future movies. Nope, because they basically already did it in the second movie. Yeah, but they might do more. I don't know. Probably not. 
<laughs> just throw it in my guess there. We'll have to wait three years and then see. Yeah, it's not as compelling to just say, and that's probably the last thing we'll see of it. On a lighter note, thanks to Mitchell who shared this video with us. It's a two-minute video parody video called Jurassic Park in Different Eras, and it's animated scenes from Jurassic Park. So the first one's the Devonian era, and it's the scene where they first see the dinosaurs in the park. Ellie turns her head, and it, and instead of seeing a Brachiosaurus, she sees something that looks like a Tiktaalik. Yeah, one of those little amphibians turning into a land animal early phases. <laughs> yeah. They also have the Precambian Park, and there's the scene with the water, the glass in the car, and it's moving, and, and he runs out of the car and he says, early single cellular protus, run. They may also possibly be early jellyfish. Scientists are undecided. <laughs> so uh, a few scenes like that, and it kind of talks about, well, maybe the movie is fine as it is. I wonder if that's if they started with the idea that it's called Jurassic Park, but a lot of the animals in it aren't from the Jurassic, and then think like, well, what if they went to an even more extreme? <laughs> oh, even well, they, they end with Jurassic Park in Jurassic Park with velociraptors, and then they say, wait a minute, this is Jurassic Park, but velociraptors are from the Cretaceous, so mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> that could be, you're right, though, it could be how they started. And they talk about, oh, no, the velociraptors should be half the size and have feathers and all this stuff. And then they talk about, and the T-Rex, that's right, that's from the Jurassic, even though it's not, it's from the Cretaceous. That's from even later in the Cretaceous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a joke, too. But it says, and you're supposed to be a scavenger, not a predator, and this is as the T-Rex is eating Dr. Alan Grant, so. <laughs> Which is also not really true. Well, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> parody. So, <laughs> it's an enjoyable watch. In some other Jurassic Park news, thanks to Sarah for sharing this one with us. So the New Zealand Mint has a Jurassic Park 25th anniversary one ounce silver coin for sale for 85 US dollars. Oof. Yeah. It's licensed by Universal Studios and it has a colorful Jurassic Park logo engraved on it. And apparently they've made 10,000 of these. Oh, that is kind of cool, actually. <laughs> now I kind of want one. <laughs> is it because, you know, there's a scarce number? No, it's because it's colored, mm. and it's all officially licensed, and it's from New Zealand, which just sounds like a nice place. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting choice, because I don't think Jurassic Park has anything to do with New Zealand, either in filming or inspiration or anything. No, but it's interesting that Universal licenses this out. <laughs> Foreign governments mm -hmm. <laughs> to make coins. That is weird. And last, thanks to Derek, who shared this one with us. There's a fun review of a tabletop or board game called Jurassic Park Danger. And reading the review, it actually sounds really similar to Hasbro's Jurassic Park 3 Island Survival Game, one of oh, Garrett's yeah. favorites. That's yeah. a good game. Except Jurassic Park Danger is a Ravensburger game. And this game has a bunch of callbacks to the original Jurassic Park movie, including quotes from characters such as Ray Arnold. They have his line, hold on to your butts <laughs> on the cards. And the, I'm not sure how many people can play but one person plays as the dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. And I like to play as the dinosaurs. There you go. You can be T-Rex, Dilophosaurus, and Velociraptor. Actually, you're all of them, yeah. if it's anything like Jurassic Park 3 Island Survival. Good. Uh, and everyone else plays as the human characters, and then humans have to try to escape the island via helicopter while the dinosaurs have to try to kill the humans. So, yes. That's how you win. 
and <laughs> as the dinosaurs, yeah. And the game board, it's set up in a similar way to Settlers of Catan. There's huh. these hexagon-shaped areas that create a circle slash island. Do you actually build the map like you do with Settlers of Catan, or is it always the same? I think it's the same. Oh, That's okay. how it looks in the pictures. So you can just move in six directions rather yeah. than just four. That's cool. I think that might be the same as Jurassic Park 3, too. That had different areas on the board. Yeah, but I think they had six-sided shapes, too, if I remember correctly. Oh, I don't remember. Gotta play it again. (laughs) And then play this one and compare. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we should. That can be the dinosaurs both times. I see. (laughs) I was just about to ask, would you let anyone else try being the dinosaur? I'd let them try. As long as I get to be the dinosaurs often, I'm okay with it. (laughs) This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to move on to our interview with Sean Rubin about Bolivar. But in case you are not familiar with the book, we want to give a quick recap of what it's about. There's a little girl named Sybil, and she lives in New York City. She's probably like eight years old or thereabouts. And she likes to go around with her camera, sort of documenting things, a little bit Harriet the Mm Spy-esque. And one of her favorite subjects is her neighbor, who is a T-Rex, basically. (laughs) And nobody else notices that this dinosaur exists because they're so busy in their own life. Yes. This is Bolivar, is the dinosaur. Yes. So there's Bolivar and Sybil are kind of the main characters. And then Sybil's parents and teacher and other minor characters make some appearances too but it's really well drawn and really enjoyable to read which is why we wanted to speak with sean about his book 
So here's the interview. We're here today with Sean Rubin, who is an author, illustrator, and co-founder and chief creative officer of MNY Group, and his graphic novel, Bolivar, came out November of last year, and it's really delightful. It's humorous, it's wonderfully illustrated, it's great for both kids and adults to appreciate, and one of the reviews of his book likened his work to Maurice Sendak, and I agree. (laughs) Oh, thank you. So what inspired you to create this book? How'd you come up with this idea of a dinosaur living the city life? Yeah, uh... So, um, Boulevard is sort of a, sort of a family legend in some ways. He's, uh, he's based on a toy that I got, I don't know, when I was three or four years old that my, my cousin Eddie decided to name Boulevard because he said he looked like a Boulevard. <laughs> and, um, he's, uh, the toy itself is, um, one of these, um, like plastic pot-bellied, uh, T-Rex, um, dealies, although it had, had three fingers for some reason, sure. um, so it kind of looks like an allosaurus, right? But um, it was based on that uh, that painting, Age of the Reptiles mm-hmm. uh, at Yale. That's just the way the thing looked. And um, my cousin Eddie would make the dinosaur go on all sorts of crazy adventures. And uh, one day, uh, Boulevard became mayor of New York. And he was sort of holding a press conference. And uh, it was uh, shocked to find that no one really cared that the mayor of New York had become a dinosaur. <laughs> so um, I, I went home. And I started writing a, what I thought would be a very uh, quick picture book, uh, mostly for the edification of my family. But we would laugh about this the next time we got together. And um, I realized that um, probably the most interesting thing about the idea was that nobody seemed to care that there was a dinosaur in the city. So um, started reworking it a little bit. And, you know, I started asking questions like, OK, if there was a dinosaur in Manhattan, where would he live? Mm-hmm. What did he like to do? What does he like to eat? What are his favorite places to visit? And um, in a lot of ways, the book is about answering those questions and sort of following the dinosaur around. Yeah, it's really cool. And so I guess you drew the dinosaur basically exactly the way that toy was because it's got the three fingers and the big pot belly and all that. <laughs> yes, I, I, I feel like I need to defend myself to you too. I actually know how to draw dinosaurs. <laughs> we saw it. Yeah, it's in other pages. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, there, there's a bit of there's a bit of a conceit. Um, I thought it would be interesting if somehow the, the living, breathing dinosaur uh, was somehow less scientifically realistic than all the depictions in museums and elsewhere. Um, but, uh, I don't know how often or people would pick up on that or if they would, but that was very funny to me for the record. Mm -hmm. I thought you could do one of those like scientific or like sci-fi explanations by saying it's been 66 million years and you know, it's like a domesticated dinosaur. So maybe it like needed another finger and you know, it's, it's a little bit fatter because it doesn't have to hunt its food. It's just kind of living a life of luxury or something like that. Right. That, that, that'd be a really, that'd be a really interesting explanation. (laughs) (laughs) How much of his backstory have you created? Like how, how is Bolivar the only dinosaur? I wonder if you know. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, believe it or not, uh, if and when there's a sequel, mm-hmm. uh, it'll actually probably touch on some of those things. How nice. Uh, but um, I, I, I mean, just to, to speak as generally as possible, I just sort of imagine dinosaurs um, having always been around uh, and living in various places and parts of the world. And then eventually, you know, like, like many populations of animals or whatnot, that there were fewer and fewer of them until this is the last one. But, um, you know, perhaps, you know, I actually, I did a um, sort of a prequel 
for a marketing uh, publication called Free Comic Book Day, mm-hmm. where um, Bolvar is uh, describing his parents coming in through Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, that just sort of kicks the can down the road. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I sort of imagine them immigrating the, into Ellis Island and being very concerned that people were going to notice dinosaurs, but everybody's just worried about sort of blending in themselves. So it, it sort of never comes up there. They're too concerned about whether or not they have measles or whooping cough to realize that they're <laughs> completely different species. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You could go in so many directions with this concept. Yeah. <laughs> it's for 224 pages. It's amazing that it doesn't really seem 100% done. At least the idea still. Um, I get that question and other questions. And that's really kind of where I'm thinking, well, if I, I decide to do more of the story, it would be about answering those kinds of questions. Yeah. Is it possible? Because I, in the book, Bolivar. At one point, he didn't notice that uh, Sybil had followed him around. Is it possible that he doesn't notice other dinosaurs? Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm very attached to the idea of him being the only dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think might be possible, perhaps, is maybe there's some uh, prehistoric reptiles mm. somewhere. So, oh, yeah. And, you know, you could, you could sort of, someone would say, hey, I thought you were the only dinosaur. And he goes, technically, they're prehistoric reptiles. And, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. So I think we may be able to push things forward by exploiting that technicality. Well, you've hinted at you hinted at the Loch Ness monster a fair amount, so you could have some plesiosaurs or something thrown in the mix. Right. Remember, the Loch Ness monster isn't real, so there <laughs> oh, are any of the other three thousand <laughs> such creatures that are said to exist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you did a fair amount of research for the dinosaurs in this book because you've even got some really great ways to remember how to pronounce these names. I don't know so much if I did research as I just was a kid at one point and then never stopped reading about this stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. People, yeah, there's this guy, I forget his name now, but he was one of the one of the co-founders of Microsoft, I believe, who's really interested in digging up um, Trinosaurus skeletons. You guys may know more about this than I do. But um, he uh, people ask him, when did you get into dinosaurs? And his comeback was always, when did you stop being interested in dinosaurs? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so... Um, no, I, I have a lot of dinosaur books around. Um, my wife's favorite movie is Jurassic Park, although I think it's less to do with dinosaurs and just that she likes that movie. Hmm. So um, this is just stuff that I've always kind of been interested in. Uh, living on the Upper West Side, going to the museum, um, it's just kind of been, you know, part of the information that I, you know, happily consume, you know, on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So anything new with dinosaurs, new books about dinosaurs, things like that. And I have all the books I, I bought when I was a kid. And for that matter, all the toys that I bought when I was a kid are still somewhere. My kids play with them now. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It, really, it really shows, too. And do you have a dinosaur on almost every page of the book? That's possible. <laughs> I, never, I didn't really think about that. I checked. At one point, I checked through most of the pages just to see if you had snuck one in on every page. Yeah. And if you include birds, it's almost all of them. <laughs> yeah. That's so, that's so funny. People... Um, I got a note from one of my editors at one point, and they said, you really need more pigeons. And so <laughs> pigeons just sort of became like how many pigeons, uh, pigeons in blue coffee cups, actually. They just sort of like uh, proliferate within the story. Mm-hmm. Why the blue coffee cups? Uh, that, that's a New York thing. Um, sort of a famous uh, blue paper coffee cup design that has like, uh, like a Greek motif. It says, um, I think it's our pleasure to serve you. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, you see them in movies. They're actually real. Um, that's something that's sort of part of the visual vocabulary of the city. You know, rats, pigeons, and blue coffee cups are just kind of all <laughs> hanging out. Yeah. 
<laughs> those are the nicest of the three, I think. <laughs> yeah, for, it's just, yeah, true. <laughs> we'll have to look next time we're in New York, Garrett. I guess yeah. so. <laughs> I didn't notice any rats in there, though. Maybe because it's a kid's book, you, you left know, the rats I, out. I, I decided to I decided to not put in the rats. Um, I, I don't mind them when I see them, but uh, I also prefer at least some distance. But it's sort of exciting when you're in the subway. I go, oh, look, a rat. Um, but they could stay where they are, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> is Sybil based on anybody? Sort of. Um, it's actually, some of her expressions are uh, very much based on a cousin of mine um, who was sort of a very indignant uh, seven-year-old for some reason, <laughs> just kind of her personality. Actually, she's sort of an indignant uh, uh, 17 and 18-year-old now. Her name is Sarah. She would be very happy if I actually uh, mentioned her name on this thing, I think. <laughs> but um, she, uh, for a while, was trying to convince everybody that was writing a book about her. Um <laughs> And uh, she's just she's just leaving for college this summer, so it gives you a sense of how long I've actually been working on this. Yeah. Well, you said in the acknowledgments that you spent about five years illustrating it, right? Yes. Yeah, it really shows. There's so much detail in all these pictures. You can just stare at one page for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, it really comes across how well you know the city. Yes. I mean, in a lot of ways, the city is sort of a character. It may actually be the main character uh, <laughs> in some ways. I grew up there and I, uh, I lived on the Upper West Side or in the Upper West Side proper um, for about four years, which was the bulk of when I was actually sort of sketching this thing out. So um, it was kind of cool if I could sit in my apartment and look out a window and I, I'd have the, the cityscape and the, the rooftops and the, the water towers and all these interesting things. And I would just kind of take that and draw it. So I didn't have to do too much research other than look out the window or walk around outside or go, go food shopping. Yeah. A lot of trips to the Natural History Museum, too. Yes. Um, I, I mean, we were right there. So I try to go just to kind of walk around and, um, my wife and I actually did our baby moon there, the, uh, mm-hmm. night at the museum for grownups, mm-hmm. uh, about two and a half years ago now. So, oh. which was a lot of fun. How, yeah. what did you do there? Oh, uh, well, it's very similar to what they do for the kids, except there's like, you know, wine, but, um, <laughs> they, uh, although my wife of course wasn't drinking it because she was pregnant, but, mm-hmm. um, we, uh, you have dinner. There's like, well, there's like a reception. You have dinner, and then they have different kinds of programming. We didn't do too much of the programming until the end because we just wanted to roam the gallery. So mm-hmm. you, you go upstairs to the the dinosaur uh, halls, and they kind of had the lights off, but they would have like red spotlights on on various um, skeletons. And in fact, there's uh, there's an illustration towards the end of the book where Bolivar's uh, he looks at a, a dinosaur skeleton, the uh, the T Rex fossil. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and um, that illustration had been in the book probably one of the first ones I actually thought that that image of, of the sort of living cartoon dinosaur looking at the, you know, <laughs> the fossil is, seemed very, um, seemed like an interesting image, something I wanted to draw, but I hadn't, I didn't have a shadow. Mm. I was pretty close to done with the book by the time we actually did this baby moon, but seeing that made me decide to put a shadow behind it and I, I and even affected the way I colored it. Uh, so little things like that of actually picking up details pretty far into the process. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I think it was your acknowledgments, too. You mentioned the cloisters. Yes. So you went to the Met and then the the cloisters part of it a lot, too? Oh, I, I used to work at the cloisters. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I worked there for about a year and a half, and I, I did um, uh, pretty uh, regular volunteer work there for an additional year and a half. Mm-hmm. Cool. Oh, I was going to ask, is there something special about, what is it, West 78th and Columbus, the intersection that you show in the book? Um, yes. <laughs> um, would you like to know what it is? Yes, yes please. Um, 
So um, West 78th doesn't extend past Columbus. When you get to Columbus, it's just the Museum of Natural History. Okay. I thought that was nearby. <laughs> yeah. So the, the idea is that if you went there expecting to see this, uh, this block of townhouses, you would just discover that it doesn't exist. Instead, there's, there's a museum. <laughs> and I think originally we even had an address. It was like, you know, 53 West 78th Street or something. And that didn't make it for some reason. But just the idea, like you said, that that corner, their townhouses are between Columbus and the park on West 78th Street. And that would, again, that would just be the National History Museum. So that, that's kind of a joke. Yeah. That's cool. So the dinosaurs like living in the museum, sort of. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or, you know, it was kind of funny, too. I mean, I actually was going to put this in a different part of the city, a little bit further north in uh, West 140s uh, called Hamilton Heights. Mm-hmm. And someone had suggested to me, you know, why don't you just do it on the Upper West Side? Dinosaurs live in that neighborhood anyway. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, if you go there, there's like a Shake Shack and there's other stores and there's often things with dinosaurs. They'll do like a T-shirt, Upper West Side Shake Shack with a dinosaur eating a hamburger. <laughs> so there's this understanding that um, dinosaurs, usually like a T-Rex, is somehow like an almost a neighborhood mascot. Mm-hmm. Up in the 90s, there's a uh, there's a park. Um, a playground on Riverside Park that has these sort of big fiberglass dinosaurs. So again, they're they're there anyway. So the idea of them actually being one that was alive and just like in a rent-controlled apartment seemed to make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> I like too that at one point Boulevard disguises himself and it, he looks kind of like a toy dinosaur in the museum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, little touches like that. Or I thought it was interesting. The have you seen this dinosaur poster after people discover he's around it's a really different portrayal of him yeah like very ferocious yes. yeah he's like almost i mean i don't even know if that's really a real species it's it's sort of based on the uh the t-rex from uh jurassic park right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so if someone was trying to describe what they saw someone you know to a police sketch artist they would have probably defaulted to that anyway oh <laughs> so. yeah that's true and it's like even more ferocious it's got like extra horns sticking right. out of its eyes and stuff the teeth like that are really pronounced <laughs> yeah yeah yep i think some of my favorite illustrations were the mosaics you have of the dinosaurs yes um the ones that are towards the end of the uh, the end papers mm-hmm. they're beautiful it looks they're so Thank detailed you. too yeah the um they're based on uh, subway mosaics in fact there's actually there are subway mosaics on 81st street there's a uh, subway station that you kind of get out and you, you go to the uh, Natural History Museum. It's a, there's like an entrance there. There used to be. I don't know if it's still accessible. But um, a little while ago, they did some subway art where you'll have these big silhouettes of extinct animals, including dinosaurs. And then they'll have kind of like a smaller animal next to it. Mm-hmm. And I always really liked that. I wanted to incorporate something like that into the book. And there were a couple of different attempts at that. And we, we landed on just doing a sort of like uh, – somewhat frenetic mosaics of just the different dinosaur species. And I guess there's a, uh, there's like a pterodon in there too, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. And it, it wound up like that. And then the, yeah, the, the brontosaurus kind of looks like the Sinclair dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Iconic. <laughs> yeah. Right. Very well. I mean, beautifully proportioned, which is one of the reasons I'm guessing they have used it for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Cool. Do you have any other dinosaur books in the works? Um, well, we're, we're going to be, uh, hopefully doing like a look and find based on Boulevard for younger readers. Um, a lot of our, uh, uh, a lot of our friends, so we have small kids and a lot of our friends have small kids. They may not be able to get through the whole book in a night. 
And so what they've, they've decided to do is they would just sort of call out things in the pages and ask their kids to find them. Mm-hmm. So my, our publisher also kind of had been doing this with, with their kids. And they said, hey, you want to do something that's, that's like a, a look and find. So we're going to be doing that. I'd like to bring some more dinosaurs into that. Maybe there will be a dinosaur on every page with that one. Garrett, yes. But that's probably going to be the first one. And um, other than that, in any possible uh, Boulevard sequels, uh, um, nothing pending, although – I mean, it'd be very interesting to do something dinosaur related that wasn't Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're just so much fun to draw. So. Oh yeah. yeah. So is a look and find is that sort of like a, a oh, word yeah, search with pictures? It's sort of like Where's Waldo. Oh okay. Actually, yeah. As is, as is arguably the whole book anyway. <laughs> but uh, they just were like, what if we just took that part of it and made it eighteen pages? I'm like, yeah, that that, that works. So we're gonna try it. Would there be like a list of things to find on the pages? Is that how it works? Yeah, usually that's the way. It's like a little key. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. That reminds me of this new Gulliver's Museum in New York. I don't know if you've heard of it, Sean. I think it just opened last year. And it's, no, I think I have. It's a miniatures thing in Times Square. Oh. And they give you a list of things to look for within <laughs> all of the miniature landscapes. <laughs> Didn't you say there were some dinosaurs in there too? No, I was looking. Well, actually, they have the Loch Ness Monster. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so close and yet yep not quite <laughs> maybe yeah. they'll add some stuff <laughs> can you tell us what's your process for illustrating oh sure um well uh a very important part of this is to sort of sit around staring at the wall sure uh, that's about 80 percent of it <laughs> i wish i was kidding um uh, but um normally what i'll do is i'll i'll have a sense of what i want to draw and um i'll i'll sketch it move things around. Um, I will actually still uh, sort of use scissors to cut apart a drawing and like tape it back together if I don't think that the, the different elements or the different figures are on it just right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of will work by making a collage of my own drawings and that's when I'll, I'll get a sketch. And um, once the sketch is done, usually send it to my editor, art director will talk about it, they'll have some notes. Uh, once we get it to a point where we think, okay, this is where this is the way we'd like the finished composition to look, um, I'll actually then take a completely different piece of paper, much bigger, and then um, I will redraw the whole thing. Um, it's funny. There's actually a lot of people trace, which is like in some ways way faster. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do that. I used to use a light box, and I stopped about nine years ago, I think now, um, because I just realized that it looked very much like I had been tracing something. Um, okay. There's like a, there's a certain steadiness to the line when you trace that was just kind of – it was making it look boring and, and very kind of like stiff. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't use pen. I only use pencil for lines. So it just kind of I got out of that and I literally redraw the whole thing just like eyeballing the sketch. But it makes it more fun. This is you kind of get to draw everything twice. Yeah. And um, once that's done, a lot of cross hatching, perhaps obviously. But uh, once that's done, I'll scan that with a large document scanner. Boulevard was done on pages that were about uh, like 11 by 22 my scanner can only do 11 by 17, so <laughs> most of the artwork had to be stitched in either two or three different pieces. Oh, wow. And uh, you scan it in the computer, you, you fiddle with the levels in Photoshop so that the, the, the whites are brighter and the, the darks are you know, cleaner. And then um, I use Photoshop to uh, basically tint the, um, uh, tint the line work. So you'll have like you know, semi-transparent color going over it so that you can see the lines underneath. Mm-hmm. 
I think years ago, uh, for people that know about illustration, if any of your listeners, I, th I think years ago that would be done by somebody doing a watercolor wash on vellum and then the lithographer would combine that with the line work. Hmm. We're basically doing the same thing. We're just doing it all in one digital picture and then upload it to uh, the uh, FTP server and hope for the best with the printer. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the text in the images, that's all handwritten? Yes, actually. Um, I, I lettered it myself. Wow. Um, much to a number of people's uh, chagrin. <laughs> uh, they're like, you don't have to do that. And I just felt like I knew I could and I really wanted to. And um, I uh, I went out of my way over the past 10 years, really since college, to try to improve my handwriting. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I kind of like wanted an opportunity to use it. So I actually, um, actually hand-lettered the whole thing twice because I didn't like it the, the way that the first time I did it. Oh, wow. I erased everything and did it again. And um I hope I to never have to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so in the next one, are you going to use a computer to type out the words? Oh, no, I meant I hope I never have to rehand re Oh, okay, okay, got yeah. it. Yeah, got it. I will definitely hand letter the next one, though. Yeah. Nice. Well, <laughs> it, for what it's worth, it is very nice handwriting. Yeah, holy Thank cow. You, I appreciate that. That's got to be yeah. so hard, too, to keep it consistent. I uh, use um, guidelines, and it's actually it's funny. That it, compared to a lot of people's minds, nowhere near consistent enough. <laughs> I just, I really enjoyed um, growing up when I was younger, you know, looking at uh, uh, Sparky Schultz's uh, handwriting and Bill Watterson and all, and uh, Walt Kelly did Pogo mm -hmm. and they had very identifiable handwritings. And um, it was really a sense in which the way they chose to letter things really was part of the story. And um, you can only really do that, I think, if you do it by hand. There's, there's certain comics letters that are really good with that by using fonts or typography, but um you know, there are a number number of points in the book where the you know the lettering just gets really big or bold or mm -hmm. tiny or something, and I just felt like it's actually easier for me to do this if I letter the whole thing by hand. That's amazing, and you've got like the onomatopoeia or whatever you call it, where the camera says flash, and then it's yes. that really light lettering like kapow right. or something. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, there's not there's not too much onomatopoeia in the book actually, but. There's, just enough, I guess, or I hope. My my favorite, my favorite example of that, by the way, is the um, when uh, the paleontologist is trying to escape Jupiter rolling down the ramp. Mm -hmm. There's the the thud and the screaming. That's a really good example of something that, at least to me, would be next to impossible to do with a font because the lettering actually there's you know sort of like follows a contour. Mm, um, yeah. So I knew I wanted to do things like that, so I just decided that this is how it's going to get. This is how I'm going to handle it. Yeah. Also, the kids when they're laughing at the yeah. at Sybil and the ha yep. ha 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 like takes over the whole page. Right. Exactly. Really cool. Yeah. Your website mentions that Boulevard is being developed as a feature film. Is it too soon, or can you tell us about that? Oh, um, there's some things I definitely could talk about with that. It's in development. Um, <laughs> people people always say, well, you know, what does it mean when it's in development? And the response is, it means it's in development. But um, there's uh, there's already been um, a screenwriter assigned to it, which I think hasn't been announced publicly yet, so I probably can't say who it is. Sure. But um, I think he's a great fit. Met him actually was able to uh, uh, give him a tour of the Upper West Side and uh, the museums and Central Park uh, about a week ago now. Um, we did that. So things are um, – I know that the people involved are, are very interested in, in trying to uh, keep moving it forward. But um, – it's uh, it's always tricky with Hollywood. Um, there's some really uh, you know abysmal percentage of things that you know get announced that are actually get made or mm -hmm. you know whatever. So um, you know we don't want to get too optimistic in some ways, but 
the other thing is that we um, we're we're very happy with the uh, production company that's working on it. Twenty One Laps. They did um, they did the Night of the Museum uh, oh, yeah. movies. They did Stranger Things. So you know, kids CGI. Natural History Museums, it's, it seems like it's very much in their wheelhouse. Yeah. So I think, I think they're a really great fit. And uh, I like the people, we like the people they put on it already and some of the ideas that they have. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. So it would be yeah. live action with CGI, most likely? I, yeah, I think so. Um, we talked about animation for a while. Um, I think one of the reasons why we're actually resistant to doing that now is because uh, the, the city is just so much part of the story mm-hmm. um, that doing a CGI city may miss out on something. Now, you know, I said to them, please don't turn around and film the whole thing in Toronto. But they said, well, we can't promise we won't do that. But <laughs> it would be much less expensive. Um, oh, yeah. True. Yeah, because I think New York is, what, maybe the most expensive city to film in? Something like that. Yeah. yeah I don't know. It's, uh, it'll be interesting. You, you know, they do the establishment shots and then the inside of the apartments in a in a uh, soundstage or something, you know, you'd, you'd be you'd be shocked, I think, if you realized a, a film that takes place in New York and maybe they spend like a week filming in New York <laughs> right. versus another hundred days filming somewhere else, South Africa. Yeah, so, yeah. that yeah. might be a good compromise. So at least you could get the outside parts where you really notice a difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, oh, after people see the movie and they're visiting the city and then they notice like this is the intersection or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if, if I had my druthers, I, you know, I just say, I, I to me, it was almost like, you could imagine this almost like a Nora Ephraim film, mm-hmm. you know, like, who's got a male, which also takes place in the same neighborhood, admittedly, but just that sense of like, oh, it's a small neighborhood, there are people walking around this neighborhood, this is how it feels to be here. I think it'd be very interesting to see that. Yeah, the Upper West Side is probably my favorite part of New York, mostly because of the museum, but it's also just yeah. a pleasant place to be. <laughs> yeah, it's very quiet. Yeah, well, I didn't. Well, I guess this is in Upper West Side, it's further north, the fiberglass sculptures. Oh, yeah. We've never seen those. We should have checked that out. <laughs> what is the Upper West Side? It's, um, I think it's in the 90s, like 92nd Street or something. Okay. Yeah. So technically, Upper West Side goes up to 110th, and then uh, Morningside Heights will start beyond that. But um, it uh, depends on who you ask. Especially sure. uh, <laughs> real estate agents. I'll have some very interesting opinions about all that stuff. Yeah. I'm sure the Upper West Side is like 30th to 130th, <laughs> according to them. <laughs> <laughs> I always put it at roughly 70th through like 110th, uh, you know, or maybe 100th, but yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm curious now, what kind of sculptures do they have? Oh, the, the fiberglass? Uh, they're sort of, uh, I'm trying to remember the last time I saw them, so I could be giving you completely incorrect information right now. <laughs> but um, assuming they're still there and they still look like this, they're sort of uh, like a, almost like a celery uh, green yellow and i think that they're duck bills mm. oh, okay mm-hmm. for some reason i want to say that they're duck bills I, yeah um, maybe there's an iguanodon too i think there's two or three of them and you could just you could just climb on them so you could be like riding a dinosaur you know, <laughs> Fun. A and i guess also an adult if you have a kid but yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's half the reason to have kids right yeah is this dinosaur stuff yeah i think so <laughs> climb on things yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's um. Hey, this is real fun, isn't it, Dad? I want to go. I don't really <laughs> care about this. <laughs> Just try it. Here, I'll show you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yep. With a lot of friends who've been uh, using that to justify the purchase of you know, like Star Wars toys. So it's just like, All right, stop. But yep. Uh, here it's Legos. 
I purchased more Legos, uh, I think in the past two years than I did my entire life prior. <laughs> I was really into Legos when I was a kid. So it gives you a sense of what, what goes on. Nice. <laughs> There's a fair number of dinosaur Legos though. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The Jurassic Park stuff's really cool. Um, <laughs> We haven't quite gotten into that. We have some of the Playmobil dinosaurs, which are actually really great. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, because uh, those are bigger, of, right? Yeah, they're they're um, yeah they're, they're actually quite large. I mean, the, the Brachiosaurus is know, at least a foot. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're they're sort of like they're big and they're lightweight. And I think we have the Brachiosaur, the T Rex. There's like a Brachiosaur like baby, and then um, there's a Triceratops. Uh, I think my oldest likes the Triceratops the best for some reason. Kind of pops up a lot. They're pretty cool. I see the wheels turning in Garrett's head. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be buying the exact same thing for my quote-unquote kids. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So if people want to find out more about you and your work, where's the best place they can go? Um, Well, definitely my website, which is just seanrubin.com. And then I'm on Twitter, uh, Sean C. Rubin, C. as in Charles. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the same handle for Instagram. And uh, I definitely post a lot about my work on both Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I try to keep my website updated as much as possible. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, do you post work in progress stuff? Yes, somewhat frequently. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, guys. It's been great. Thanks again, Sean, for the great interview. And we're looking forward to the movie, if and when it comes out. And any sequels. Yeah. Wow. You're really getting ahead of yourself now. (laughs) We're expecting a lot, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Frutidens, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. It was a heterodontosaurid that lived in the Jurassic in what is now Colorado, and its name means Frutatooth. It's the smallest known ornithischian. Young adults are estimated to be 26 to 30 inches. That is small. Yep or 65 to 75 centimeters long, and weigh 1.1 to 1.7 pounds, <laughs> or half to 0.75 kilograms. Yeah, I often forget when we talk about length measurements, a lot of that is tail and neck. So the amount of actual body is a lot less than it looks like. It's like a chicken with a tail, although even smaller. Maybe more like a pigeon with a tail. <laughs> it's similar to echinodon which was a small bipedal dinosaur from the cretaceous and what is now england and it's got similar body proportions to heterodontosaurus so it had you know short arms and long legs and the hind limb bones were hollow similar to small theropods so it was lightweight and probably agile it also may have had bristly filaments along its back which is speculative based on a relative tianyulong 
It's an ornithischian. Most ornithischians are herbivores, but since fruit dens was so small, it may have been hard to digest just plant vegetation. Yeah, it can't keep that stuff in there for 72 hours. <laughs> yeah, you need those big guts. Mm -hmm. It was probably bipedal and omnivorous. The jaws weren't really specialized, so it may have eaten plants, insects, and other invertebrates. And it could open its jaws wide and bite quickly, but it had a weak bite. The lower jaws had an enlarged canine-like tooth with a gap for it in the upper jaw. Hmm. And a small peg-like tooth was found in front of the canine-like tooth. It kind of reminds me of a warthog. <laughs> or like a <laughs> Much smaller. hippo or something. The way they have those big bottom teeth and then like the small flatter teeth in front. Mm -hmm. It also had replacement teeth, which is different from other heterodontosaurids. Its name refers to Fruta, Colorado, where it was found. It was found in the 1970s and 80s by George Callison and a team from the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, and they found it in the Morrison Formation's Brushy Basin member. It was formally described in 2010 by Richard Butler and others, and the type species is Frutidens hagerorum. The species names in honor of Paul Haga Jr., Heather Haga, Blythe Haga, <laughs> and Paul Haga III, and Catalina Haga for the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, who provided support. And hopefully I pronounced their last name correctly. You only said it like seven times. I don't think anyone would notice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they found incomplete jaws and vertebrae, partial hind limbs, and a nearly fully grown individual, as well as at least three other individuals. And and they ranged in age from two to five years. Other animals that lived in the same time and place as frutidens include snails, clams, crayfish, insects, fish, turtles, lizards, crocodilomorphs, and mammals. That'd be a good one to have a replica of. You could fit that just about anywhere. <laughs> if it's only like less than three feet long. Can make a puppet out of it. Maybe. It's probably got a real skinny neck. Oh, true. Marionette. Yeah. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day goes into why the liver has melanosomes because obviously i needed to learn this after reading that it had them so basically the liver is the largest internal organ in most animals bodies all vertebrates have livers and in the human body it weighs about one and a half kilograms or 3.3 pounds it's kind of in the front right below the diaphragm in between the lower parts of your ribs if you're wondering where your liver is right next to the stomach basically and in birds, the mullard liver weighs about 80 grams out of 4 kilograms of body mass, which gives it a similar sort of proportion to its body size. It's about 2% of its body weight, similar in humans. And the liver is also the largest internal organ. The reason I say internal is because the skin is the largest organ overall. Skin weighs about 3.6 kilograms or 8 pounds on the average person. That's a lot. That's <laughs> a lot of skin, yeah. It's thicker than most people realize, but it does a lot of amazing things. Anyway, that makes skin more than twice as heavy as the liver. And skin uses melanin to protect you from ultraviolet radiation. Basically, it ionizes the UV so that it's not as harmful. And that's why people who historically live closer to the equator and were more exposed to sun tend to have more melanin in their skin. It's advantageous. In the liver, apparently it's used as a hormone to regulate some functions of the liver. And I don't think this is that well known because I couldn't find any scientific papers about it other than that just general statement. The liver, it turns out, does a ton of things. So I don't even know which functions it regulates because the liver creates chemicals for digestion. It also creates the protein albumin, which is the same thing that an egg white is made out of. <laughs> it's just useful to have in your blood for 
muscles and stuff to use. The liver also decomposes red blood cells and it produces hormones, among them I think are melanin, and then it does hundreds of other things, which is partly why a lot of people are saying there's no artificial liver that's ever been successfully made and we don't think that there will be one for quite a while because it's such a complicated organ, but I guess that's why it has so much melanin in it, melanosomes. (laughs) related to this regulation of all these different functions that it's doing yeah or maybe it helps with one of its 500 functions like it interacts with fat in the bloodstream or something i don't know i couldn't find specific reference to it but the two biggest organs in the body are chock full of melanosomes so that's interesting i thought hopefully someone else does too sabrina doesn't seem impressed (laughs) i guess i'm more interested in the ones that tell me the color of dinosaurs yeah I always like the biochemistry stuff. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino for special rewards. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.